0: We're going to look in the first part of during this wintertime, maybe the next six to eight weeks, at the top trending verses in 2023. We are partners with and use the Bible app you Version. You can set our church. There's your church on there. And we get those analytics from them. And one of the reasons we thought is we talked about biblical focus last week. We thought, let's look at the verses that everyone's looking at. And of course, this is international, so it's completely global in the analytics, but our assumption is if other people have searched these verses and looked at these verses, there's a good probability many of you have done the same and many of us have done the same. And so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at these verses that other people are looking at. One thing is we are a broader community. When we talk about being biblically focused, we're not talking about just First Baptist Church of Tombaugh. We're talking about churches and believers literally everywhere in the world that are taking the time and the effort and the energy to incorporate the scriptures into their life, designing their paradigm for living, their pathway, their, their charted course for the future on what the Word of God says. And so, in a very real sense, this makes us part of even a broader community. We do that all the time in our church. Over 10% of our budget goes to other organizations, other ministries, the same way we challenge you to be generous and to give for the cause of Christ We as a church administratively give to partner ministries so that the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God, just as Jesus taught us to pray for it, can be expanded and the hope that's found in Christ. Those individual conversations we're having, one conversation at a time, inviting people into a life-changing relationship, are happening all across the world as a result because we're together this morning. And so it's so much bigger. And the biblical community is so much bigger. And sometimes the way the news and, and things run in culture, you may feel like, okay, if I'm really trying to live by this word, am I isolated? Because maybe in my classroom, I don't know anybody else that's looking at the word of God. In my office group, I don't know of anybody else that's studying the word of God. It may be that outside of being here on a Sunday morning, or being with us on live stream this morning or throughout the week, that it feels like you're alone. This is a compilation of literally hundreds of millions of people who looked at these exact same verses. Look to them for encouragement, look to them for strength, look to them for guidance, look to them for their life decisions the same way we do. And the first one we're going to look at, we've not put them in any chronological order. and So we're going to look at one each week kind of on the theme of what's happening in that service. But the first one that is typically always in the top 20 of searched verses throughout the year is a verse many who have been in church for a long time have already heard. It's possible, actually, if you grew up in church and you went through the Bible study system in church, whether it was discipleship on Wednesday night, Bible studies on Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons and Sunday nights, wherever you were in that process, you were probably, at some point, challenged to memorize this verse. I'm guessing most of you could actually finish it. If I start it, and I'll have to be honest, I've memorized this over my lifetime in about seven different translations, and so my... Off the top of my head comes out as sort of a compilation of those different translations. But most of you could finish the sentence if I say, For God so... You got it. Everybody's just going to keep going. That's great. Let me know what verse you want to end on. By the way, it's, it's so good to be together. A number of, number of close friends are, are here this morning, been out on business, some with illness issues. Got to see Bobby and Tracy, good friends. Our kids grew up together. Um, it's just nice to be together. And I'm telling you what, I don't, I don't know what this means. I don't think there's any particular definition in the Bible. Um, but when you all were singing and we cut back on the instruments for a moment, and it was just your voices. I got like goosebumps. It could be because I wore a short sleeve shirt. It's 62 degrees outside. But I knew once I was up here, it's like 85 degrees up here. So. Um, but it's just good to be together. And now we're good looking at not only was a top-trending verse in 2023, but what is probably considered one of the all-time favorites of the church. Not just our church, but the church universally throughout history. It's Jesus' words... For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter three, verse 16. And Jesus is sharing this verse just like we do with our friends just like we do with our coworkers, just like we do with our fellow students and classmates, just like we do with our neighbors, just like we do in the different environments and with our hunting buddies and, and our fishing buddies and our quilting buddies. And, and you know, Jesus is sharing this with a man who wants to know God. His name's Nicodemus, and he wants to know God so much he's made a vocation out of studying God. He was, according to scripture and according to what we know historically, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which in the first century AD, in Jesus's lifetime, was the ruling religious class, primarily over all of Jerusalem. And so he is in the highest politically motivated religious position he can be in, and he's seeking God. He was a Pharisee, which are experts on the law, experts on all the hundreds and hundreds of laws that were devised out of the very simple Ten Commandments of our Old Testament. He had lived them. He had practiced them. He had, um, in many ways, policed and watched over them. He wanted to know God deeply. He was a rabbi. So, he didn't take all that research and just apply it internally. He turned it into teaching and into methodology that would help other people understand. But until this evening, when he meets with Jesus and he hears really for the first time that he can understand and comprehend that God is interested in a relationship. And that relationship is a new start. It's a new beginning. It's in John chapter 3 that the phrase born again comes from. Jesus tells him, unless you're born again, unless your spirit is rebirthed by the work of God, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the love of God, you'll not know him. That it takes that radical moment of change at any point in a person's life to know and be in a relationship with God. And we have confidence that this conversation inviting Nicodemus into a life-changing relationship with Jesus, while orchestrated and being carried on by Jesus himself, is successful. You'll find Nicodemus' name again later in the book of John in chapter 7. And in that case, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, all of his co-workers, all of Nicodemus' friends, all of the people that he has spent his life with and he has spent all of his energy with, are criticizing, and they're complaining because they are saying out of a position of prejudice, there's no way the Messiah, there's no way the Son of God, there's no way the Savior can come from the region of Galilee. We all know that as a blue-collar, working-class people, nobody of significance had come out of that group. And Nicodemus is the one in John chapter 7 who stands up and says, but the miracles are happening. We, we can't contest them. Look at the evidence. Surely this Jesus must be the Messiah. Nicodemus wouldn't have had that conversation with his coworkers and colleagues if he hadn't had this conversation with Jesus. Later, in the end of the Gospel of John, that's this book of John that we're in right now, in John chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified. We know and we understand from the whole story that that crucifixion was for the purpose of creating the sacrifice that would give us the ability to be cleansed of our sins. The prophet Isaiah said there would be a time of reckoning. There would be a moment in which we would reckon, obligate ourselves and have conversation with God and in that moment, out of God's love, out of his mercy, our sins who are, have stained our soul deep as a scarlet red, will be washed and cleansed and white as fresh snow. Nicodemus had seen that. He knew Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrifice that was required for us to be able to receive his righteousness. And yet he had a moment in which in that particular point in history, he was able to step up and do something so sacrificial so giving, so generous. When everybody else had gone into hiding, when everybody else was afraid of what the Roman centurions would do, when everybody else was shaking and wondering if they've crucified Jesus, what were they going to do to me? Nicodemus, who had everything to lose because of his stature in the community as a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin Council, everything to lose comes together with a man named Joseph. All we know of him really is that he's from Arimathea. And the two of them take possession of Jesus' body and make preparations in a brand new tomb to bury it. Out of respect and out of love that started with this conversation. Of course, fortunately, we know the rest of the story. That body didn't remain buried. That body and that tomb doesn't become a memorial. It becomes the place where death is conquered. And on the following third day in the morning, when they came to have the graveside service for Jesus, the angels appeared and said, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He is alive. And I can't imagine, as they came back from the tomb and as they came back from the empty grave and somebody probably out of the original 12 and out of that close-knit group of friends and disciples came to Nicodemus and said, the tomb is empty. And Nicodemus, you wonder if he didn't think back to this conversation where eternal life was promised to him. If he didn't in some way almost laugh out loud and Of course, because he was the son of God. He was never a victim or ever subject to death. He is the author of all life. Of course, he's alive. All in this first little conversation where Jesus says a number of things, but the focus of the search verses, and in many ways the focus of our heart, begins with those simple words. For God loved the world. It is absolutely a comprehensive love in every way imaginable. God loved the world. Now, on a global perspective, it's hard to imagine. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around the analytics we got from version to get to this place today, that hundreds of millions of people looked up this verse last year. That for multiple centuries, great theologians and people whose names were never remembered looked up this verse and got comfort from the reality that God loves the world. And Jesus is very specific. He uses a word in this language, in the language of the New Testament, the words cosmos, and it describes the world as a network of relationships in humankind. He's not describing the world as I would be tempted to describe it. When you talk about the world, to me, I tend to think of the physical properties. I think of a building like this. I think of the mountains. I think of the trees. I think of the the ducks and and then the deer and the wildlife and the fish. And I think of all the beautiful things that make up this environmental system that God created. Ironically, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying... I love the trees. He's not saying I love the owls. He's not saying I love the whales. He's not saying I love the porpoises. He's not saying he loves anything even if it's endangered. What he's saying is he loves us. Cosmos is the network of humanity. Which means Wherever we're at, whatever we're doing, whatever we've experienced, no matter how disqualified we feel to be in relationship with God, no matter how overqualified we feel to be in relationship with God, he loves us, cares for us, and wants us in relationship. He deeply, passionately, in a concerned way, loves us so much. And that's the comprehensive nature of it. He loves you. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. He loves our brothers and sisters all across the world, in every continent, in every place, even in places where they've never heard the hope of Jesus. The apostle Paul would write that there are elements in the environmental system of the world that point towards the majesty and the goodness of God. And they still have the opportunity to know. God loves us. And none of us No one in this room, nobody on live stream with us right now at this moment, none of us are disqualified from that love. He loves you. You may have made every mistake possible, and He still loves you, and He still wants to forgive you, and He still wants to know you and be with you. He loves you, and you may think that you're absolutely perfect in every form and fashion, and you don't need forgiveness, and even in the pride of that thought process, He Loves you. Long before there was body and every other definition of somehow accepting people, God loved the world. He designed us, he created us, and he loves us unconditionally and with great cost. The second phrase of verse 16 says, he gave his one and only son He loved us so much that in his fashion, he gave his son. So that through the sacrifice that happens when Jesus dies on the cross, we could be righteous. Not because we suddenly deserve righteousness, but because God gives us his righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus comes to dwell in and through us when we surrender and trust to him. When we make the simple acknowledgement, yes, God loves the whole world and that includes me. And if that's the case, then I want to know him. I want to be in relationship with him. I'm going to trust him for my life. And that life is changed and transformed Because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that was the price God was willing to pay. We're not talking about international negotiations between different countries that trade criminals back and forth. This doesn't have the superficial nature of that kind of political move. This is God giving his son so that you and I might have life. It's the most costly love possible. It is him giving everything absolutely perfect in all eternity so that everything absolutely imperfect in all eternity, us, could be forgiven and be in relationship. I mean, what would we give for a relationship? Will we give up our time would we give up financial resources? Would, would, would we, we give up our activities? What would we give up to be in a relationship with somebody else? What would I give up to have the relationship with my wife, to sustain the relationship with my wife? Because all relationships require some level of sacrifice. And whoever the very best husband ever in history is, whoever the very best wife in history is, whoever the best parent is in history, whatever we might give up to be in relationship with somebody else does not compare or compete with the fact that God gave his only son to come here, live with us, and provide the sacrifice so that we could know him. It is a comprehensive love, it is a costly love, and it is a conclusive love. Jesus makes it clear to Nicodemus at the end of verse 16 and in verses 17 and 18, he makes it absolutely clear, this is the way it is. Not just the simple phrase, it is what it is. But Jesus makes it perfectly clear. This is a conclusion. This is a decision you have to make. He says, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him, and that's the operative phrase, who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus makes it even more conclusive in verse 17 and 18. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that's good news for us, but to save the world through him, because guess what? Our decision is what condemns us, not the action of God. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. We have the opportunity to leave here today to shut off live stream and go on with our afternoon knowing that we are not condemned in the sight of God. In the, in the courts of God, we're not condemned. We're found innocent when we believe. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe, which puts the responsibility on us, not on God, is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. It's conclusive. And we are left with the decision. Will I trust Jesus? Will I believe that this love that's so hard to comprehend is comprehensive enough that it includes me? And will I make that decision? And will I trust in the sacrificial costly gift that God has given in his son and just simply say in my heart more important than with my mouth but also with my mouth I believe in Jesus, I trust in Jesus I believe Jesus died for my sins I want to follow Jesus I want Jesus to be a part of my life I want him to be my life and experience that life change because the decision is ours the choice is ours we must make that decision And if we continue to reject, the consequences are ours, not God's. If we continue to accept, and we do accept, then the consequences are also ours. But they're filled with the blessing of God. For all eternity, this doesn't change. I believe from the evidence of Scripture, Nicodemus made the decision that day to say, yes, I believe in Jesus, And I believe we will see him and meet him in heaven. If we make that decision. John clearly believed it. We're going to prepare to worship and go back into the Lord's Supper. At the end of John's life, John is a young man at this point, probably in his lower young 30s at the most, maybe 35. And he's a part of what's happening in Jesus' life. And clearly he believes John is the last of all the disciples who become apostles to be alive on earth. And at the end of his life, when he's in his mid-80s, probably 83, 84, we believe, he writes a letter to the churches in, in the Eastern Asian area. And in those letters, he said this. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. For over 50 plus years after meeting Jesus, knowing Jesus and knowing that Jesus came and gave his life for John, John had lived with that faith, lived with that belief. The most sustainable decision we can make today is to trust in Jesus. Eighty-something years old, all of his colleagues, all of his friends have already passed away. They're already out of the picture. And John still believes. The very words Jesus said that night, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. If you want to look it up, it's 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. God sent his son because he loved us, because he wants to be in relationship with us. And when we respond and say yes, we have the opportunity to know him, to be changed by him, and his righteousness to lead us and guide us through our life.